In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Tom Preston Werner about building full stack JavaScript applications with Redwood JS. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 138. So the reason that I wanted to have you on the show is, I don't know when this, maybe a month ago, maybe not even a month ago, um, you and uh, the team that you've been working with recently announced Redwood JS, which from the outside looks like an attempt to to kind of build the full stack sort of Node.js JavaScript driven framework that everyone's kind of been wanting for <laughs> years. The thing that all the Rails developers have been complaining about that didn't exist in, in Node land. Um, and from the looks of it, it looks like you've got sort of a pretty interesting take on it. So I'm really curious to learn sort of um, more about Redwood JS. Absolutely. Yes. So Redwood JS is indeed an attempt to build a full stack framework for JavaScript and to really deploy it in a serverless way. So that's one of the, the primary tenets that we have is build it end to end with JavaScript and deploy it to a serverless environment to give you the advantages of the scale that that can bring, as well as the global distribution that that can bring. So mm -hmm. one thing that we say about Redwood is that it's edge ready. And by that, we mean all of the different parts of Redwood should be able to operate on the edge once technology plays out a little bit more. This is not entirely true today, but really we're building Redwood today with an eye to the future. So Redwood is not yet fully realized, but the idea is that if we start today with the idea that some of these technologies will exist in the way that we want them to in, say, a year, then we'll be there when the technology is ready instead of the technology existing first and then coming in and saying, oh, let's take advantage of this. And then it takes another year or more to build for it. It's like the way that game programmers build their games for the hardware that will exist that yeah. <laughs> when they release, right? We're yeah. doing the same thing, but with web technology. So. So placing some bets that uh, some of the tooling that you kind of need to kind of make this thing work um, the way you, you believe it has the potential to work are going to exist, um, you know, in the near-ish future. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I can dive into those just real quick to go over them. So uh, as far as the edge readiness goes, so the whole point of Redwood really is to take advantage of a Jamstack architecture. And so... You start with the client, which ends up being a React-based uh, JavaScript uh, client that can be delivered statically. So, yeah. so think I think like deploying. before we even like go even further there, I think it'd be interesting to kind of touch on some of these kind of different layers of the stack as we get through and figure sure. out some of what the opinions are. I think even before talking about the React client, I'm, I think a lot of people have sort of a different definition of Jamstack or different picture in their head of what it means so when you say jamstack like how do you define that and what is jamstack what is it and what is it not in your mind yeah so i use the term jamstack maybe a little bit more loosely than most people today but it's a bit on purpose we're sort of purposefully trying to push the boundaries of what would be considered jamstack while still being true to the definition so jamstack javascript apis and markup that's can cover a lot of territory but it really comes with the deployment strategy as well. So a, a big part of the Jamstack is the idea that you can push your code to a Git repository and that will trigger a deploy and you're basically done. And so that's part of Redwood, that same idea. The same way that you would build a, a traditionally considered Jamstack application today, 
where it's content based and maybe you're, you have a build step and then you push that aesthetic content to a CDN. And with Netlify and others, you can have functions that'll be spun up for you. Redwood operates in exactly that, that space. And so by Jamstack, I mean, you have JavaScript that is your primary. It, it flips a little bit, maybe the J and the M. So in a, in a static content-based site, you're probably gonna have mostly static markup, and then you're gonna sprinkle in JavaScript to interact with third-party APIs, or maybe an API that you've written yourself. In the Redwood version of Jamstack, which is really the same, it's all just Jamstack, you might have more or less of each one of those components. So in Redwood, you have more JavaScript, so your, your front end ends up being all React, so it's a single page app. And your markup probably ends up being minimal, though the idea is that you can do pre-rendering and have static pages. So let's say your marketing pages or other content pages that are, that are, are suitable for pre-rendering, that you have a build phase to do that. Uh, and then you can push those out like you would in a more traditional Jamstack app today. And then the API is baked in as part of this stack in that you're you're going to write your API. It would be it would be a reason that you would choose to use Redwood is the full integration throughout the stack uh, to use the all of the fancy stuff, all the really nicely integrated, really great developer experience that we're producing for the back end as well. And this is this is another difference from. A, a more of a content related Jamstack application. Gotcha. So in my mind, like what I'm hearing is it sounds like it's like a Jamstack framework designed for people building like bespoke web applications where they need to write a lot of their own custom backend code and they need a place to do that that hopefully has some opinions and conventions that lets them do it in a more um, productive way. Maybe like we typically been used to with something like rails yeah exactly so we see it as a rails replacement yeah very so cool. if you would anything you would normally do with rails we hope that you'll be able to do uh with redwood that it, that's the competitor is that really yeah. the, the full end-to-end full stack tightly integrated includes everything testing like all like the whole database access like the whole thing end-to-end is just use this stuff, use these sets of technologies together. We've integrated them beautifully. We've created a deployment paradigm that scales very easily um, and requires almost no intervention and is JavaScript end-to-end. Awesome. So I think maybe if we wanted to just start with the front end, I'm curious to know um, how sort of bespoke your kind of client-side story is. Like... Do you have your own basically framework built on top of React with like custom routing and stuff like that? Or is it like basically create React app and Redwood takes care of sort of the interactions with the API and stuff more than that? Or, um, you know, how does it compare to something like Next.js, for example? So how much sort of Redwood specific custom stuff is going on in sort of the front end uh, side of things? Yeah, it's fairly custom on the front end, so it does not descend at all from Create React App. So there's there's no. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might have some structural similarities in yep. certain ways, and like how you create the initial files on your disk uses the same system that Create React App does. It's just built into to npm and yarn how it does that. But aside from that, it uses sort of very fundamental building blocks. So React, obviously, and we've written our own router. 
mainly because for me, it's this whole exercise, a big part of this exercise is about developer experience. And so I want things to work in a specific way. And there's some really amazing routers out there. And the, the notion to write your own router seems maybe a little absurd from, you know, when you look at it at, at first blush. But so we started with React Router, and then I think we tried Reach Router. But we just ran into structural differences that we wanted for Redwood that weren't available in either of those or any other ones that we saw. And so it was, I, I sat down and I, I wrote an experiment to see if I could whip something up that would behave in the way that I wanted it to. And a big part of it is just the ability to have control over it. So this is always a question when you're building a framework out of existing parts, which we have. We reuse a lot of existing stuff. It's not you know from whole cloth the way that, that, that some alternatives are. And that's on purpose. We wanted to start with a set of technologies that was familiar for people to make adoption much, much easier. You're starting to see some alternatives now that are very alien um, in, in, in the sort of the, the, not even JavaScript related, but things like dark lang, which are super interesting. And I think there's always room for a complete rethink of how we program. But I think it's hard. It's super, super hard. Like making that big leap from a whole stack and everything that you use today and then saying abandon literally everything that you've ever known, including your editor, including your language, including your deployment paradigms. If you have to throw all that stuff away at once, it's super hard for people to choose. And so what I wanted was to codify and standardize the types of things that we were already doing and just remove choice and remove friction and just give people the ability to sit down and say, all right, I know these technologies already. I have the prerequisite knowledge to do this. I know GraphQL, I know React, I know SQL. <laughs> and I have an idea for an application and I'm probably gonna, it's gonna be a website and it's probably gonna have some other clients, probably an, an Android app and an iPhone app and maybe it has a desktop client, maybe it has a CLI, who knows? But whatever clients I want in the future, Redwood's ready for them. And now I can just sit down and start creating my React components and my GraphQL API and get to my, just start writing business logic, just start creating the app. Yeah. Because what I've, what I've experienced and what I know many people have experienced learning React and getting into this is that that path right now is very, 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 very long yeah. and hard yeah. and horrible. And it's, there's just too much, there's too many. There's too many things, there's too many ways to do everything. Nothing is integrated well. Yeah, and that's I think what's exciting about tr trying to tackle that problem. I feel like in the, in the full stack JavaScript world, that problem has basically been untackled for a long time. There's a few tools out there that have, have tried, but it doesn't seem like anything has really gained enough market share to be seen as like, you know, as a rails, you know what I mean? Um, right. In like the JavaScript right. ecosystem. So you mentioned that you have put together your own router for Redwood and that there are, you know, some reasons for that. Is there anything in specific that you can speak to that were opinions that you kind of wanted to do differently like than the existing tools? Or is it really more about just this is a really crucial piece of the framework. If we don't own it, that's a risk, um, basically, you know? Yeah, I think it was mostly driven by a few technical things that we wanted to do and a few technical things that we didn't want to do. So one of them is 
our intention is that you have a single routing file in the same way that you do in Rails, yep. generally, unless you have like a super huge app and you can kind of split it up into a couple. But you have one place that you put routes versus the, the sort of the nested routing behavior that you find uh, today in, in kind of the main routers. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't love that. It's a level of complexity that I don't think is necessary. There's some technical challenges with that as far as layouts and, and when you make page changes that you're, it's going to try to re-render a layout. So there's, there are certain things that we need to work through to make that as performant as possible. But I love the idea of just having a single router file where you can easily track down the thing that you're looking for, right? So a lot of Redwood comes from frustrations with Rails, of which I have many. Yeah, so I'm actually really curious to dive into that as we go, because that is where a lot of my experience is as well. So I like that we sort of have that common ground um, in that same perspective, because I, I do think there's a lot of people building pure JavaScript apps today that kind of arrive there from a different path. And sometimes I feel like I can't connect with those people as easily. So it's nice <laughs> to be able to like look back and compare, you know, to something that we share. So, um, yeah, anything that you wanted to say about that, I'd be super interested to hear. Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll finish my thoughts on the router. So we wanted a, a single place that you could do your routing. And this is specifically because I love in Rails that you can generally say, here's a URL on the screen and you're, you're fixing a bug or something, you want to change some component on the screen. Here's the URL, let me go figure out what that code is that's running. And that to me has to be easy. Like if your framework doesn't make that easy, then you're, you, you've already lost. You can't, like you, there is no return from making that hard. And so the nested routing to me makes that hard. And so I, I want to, if at all possible, make it completely flat so that it's just a single set of routes they're they're in order whichever one you satisfy first wins and it sends you to a component that's a page that represents a page that to me is is the ultimate in simplicity and makes it easy to maintain like i am i'm all about long-term maintenance i'm about simplicity and I, I've been writing code long enough, and I've been involved in very large, complex web apps. And it's always a maintenance game. Velocity, like if you want to keep your velocity up, it's always a maintenance game. And so every decision that we make in Redwood has long-term maintainability baked in from the very beginning. And for the router, that means trying to reduce the complexity upfront of finding and mapping a URL to page, right? So, okay, I mean, this is not like mind-blowing, but it seems to be counter to the direction that the routers seem to be going. And some of that is technical. I'm curious with that decision, like I think one of the reasons that a lot of the routers out there do like nested routing stuff is to achieve that sort of, one of the sort of proclaimed benefits of single page apps, which is to be able to sort of just do sub navigation where I can click a link and this part of the page changes, but like this sidebar over here doesn't actually reload and the scroll position is preserved and that sort of thing. Um, Is that, did you have to make any trade-offs around that or or have you been able to sort of keep this flat approach to routing using these like page components, but still achieve the ability to do those sort of persistent layouts and stuff that people look for with single page apps? That is not a problem that we've particularly solved yet. So (laughs) um, I would love to be able to solve that. It's, this is, this is the, the, I I like to start with the interface that I think is best and then try to solve it using technology 
under the covers so that the user doesn't have to think about it. So in those cases, we will attempt to solve that those problems that you bring up with code. It may be impossible. I, I think it's probably not impossible, but the way that React works, mounting and unmounting things, is going to make it a little bit tricky. But there are, there are other ways that you can solve it. Like, for instance, right now, it's not so bad in Redwood because if you're using Apollo and you let it cache for you, then even though it'll re-render a side panel that may have done a query, it's not going to rerun the query. So the the overhead of re-rendering a sidebar in that circumstance is like a millisecond. Sure. So Yeah, it's more just about if you care about whether React threw away that DOM node and brought in a brand new one and lost like any of the browser state that's not like state stored in React, like scroll position or focus state right. and stuff right. like that. But yeah, so I, I don't have the I don't have the solution for that yet. So this is one of the things that that we need to deal with when it comes to that, right? But I always start with the developer experience that I would like to have. See if we can solve it with code, and if we can't, then maybe we have to introduce some nesting at, at say a layout. And we would probably try to keep it minimal, where it's like, okay, your layout is going to serve as your first layer, and and we're going to map into that, and it's going to be done automatically from the routes somehow, so that we could still maintain a single routing file. That would that would be my preference. Sounds like it could be achieved somehow. Yeah, I I like to think that most things can be achieved, right? Like you can do like whatever you have in your head, you can probably pull off with code as long as it's possible within the constraints of the universe. And it's just a matter of time and and money and attention. So do we have as much as we need in order to pull that off in a satisfactory way? I think it remains to be seen, right? So but Redwood is still very early. I think, you know, we have some people using it out there, you know, there's a a friend of mine wrote an application using Redwood. It's the first, I think, production Redwood application ever for doing predictions of COVID-19 related to different how different countries relate to each other. It's at predictcovid.com. And and so um, it's it's usable. Like you can put stuff out there with Redwood that works, but Redwood as a framework is still very young. And that's sort of intentionally young. We wanted to get out there early but not so early that it would completely destroy our velocity with with development. So it has, you know, it works. The tutorial works 100%. We basically wrote the tutorial the way that we wanted the code to work, and then we made the tutorial work by writing the code. So it was, uh, as opposed to readme-driven development, which I've written about, this is tutorial-driven development. So the tutorial works great. If you go outside the boundaries of the tutorial, then then you're in sort of no man's land, and and things things can get a little hairy. But we have a, a really active community now. We have some contributors that are coming on board, really helping out. So it's I think we have a really promising um, set of people working on it now, and and it's you know the, the core team now is we have about three human hours full time working on it. So it's, yeah, I mean, we should we should see pretty good progress. Yeah, it's exciting to get into these conversations when things are this young because, um, yeah, it's just exciting to learn about stuff when it's new. Yeah, so. I mean, there's so much there's so much that can that can change and that can be done. And I, you know, anyone who wants to contribute, we really welcome. Especially if you want to make a big impact, now is is the chance to do it to get in early. So definitely come by the the community. You can get through redwoodjs.com. There's a community link in the upper right. right. So um, continuing on sort of like understanding the approach to sort of how the front end application is built, I'm taking a look at like some of the example applications that you have on the, um, 
under the Redwood Redwood GitHub org, which is cool mm-hmm. to just see some like demos of like real Redwood apps. And it looks like the structure is really simple. Like you've got your routes file, you've got a pages folder, which I'm guessing is those are all the components you're supposed to route directly to. From yeah, the those are just components that that are pages. They're they're the ones that get routed. From the router. And is there anything special about those? Like I know in some other frameworks, like Next.js, for example, pages are sort of a different breed of component than other components. No, uh, these are just normal. They're 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 no different. It's mostly just the directory structure. So yeah. that was a big thing that we focused on was trying to, to create a directory structure that was going to be simple, easy to understand when you go into it, but still recognizable for anyone that's been doing React-based yeah. front-end work. Cool. So then aside from that, it looks like there's just a components directory that you basically can do whatever you want with by the sounds of it. And um, that seems like it, like really light, sort of minimal. Um, yeah, on the, front end, on the front end side, it's there's not a huge amount of fancy stuff going on. Probably the fanciest thing that we do right now, is, that's, that's big. I mean, there's lots of little fancy things. Like it actually just works out of the box and you can start writing all these things and it, and it just, you know, works. Um, Probably the, the most interesting thing that we do right now is a concept that we call cells. And cells are a declarative way to do data fetching. Yeah, the, so I think the that's the next API. place to go. And we can follow that data fetching story back to the server sure. and get deep into that. So so what does that look like um, in Redwood? What, what do you provide that allows people uh, to do data fetching? So a cell is a declarative way to make a GraphQL call. So normally in a component, if you're going to do data fetching in a rendering component, then you do a use query or something with Apollo or similar, and then you get some result and you have to check the result to see what state it's in, if it's loading, or if you got data back, or if you got an error. And so you're doing a bunch of conditionals in your render function there, and things just get kind of messy. And so cells are an abstraction on top of that, implemented as a higher order component that are going to run that cycle, that sort of life cycle for you. So you declare and export a constant called query, and in that you have your GraphQL query. Um, And then you export something called success. Uh, And in success, you just receive props that are successful data, whatever you're going to get back from your GraphQL query, as well as anything that you would send from, um, that you can send, you can send other uh, things to it as well through routing through the router. Like if there's things in the URL, you can send those through to the page, which can go into a cell and and you can get those as well. Um, And, and that happens automatically. And, and so really the happy path is declare your query, declare your success component, and then you're done. Now you can also declare a failure state and an empty state so that those can also be handled. So if there's a failure in your data fetch, then it will just use that exported component and render that for you. So it's a way to clean up your data fetching. The, this may not sound super complex, like it does clean up the code, makes it more declarative. But the real long-term win here is gonna be that because we have this abstraction, we can improve how that data fetching works over time transparently without you having to change your application code. So there's problems that exist in the GraphQL world and the React world where you have a problem called, for instance, the waterfall problem. So if you're doing your data fetching in this way, let's say you have a 
a component that's at sort of the top level of the page and it fetches some data. So maybe it's like a user profile page or something. And you're like, okay, I'm gonna get the user's sort of basic information, their name and when they joined and stuff like that. But then you also have a subcomponent that needs to get um, something related, like their set of, let's say it's a forum site. It needs to get a list of their forum posts to list on that page. So now within that component nested within it, or you know, nested within some top level component, you have to do another query. And so if you have these things nested, then you're gonna have to fetch and complete and start rendering the outer query before you have the data necessary to request the inner query. Mm -hmm. But if you're only relying on the user ID to fetch that data, then there is no reason that you had to wait. You could have done those things in parallel. Yeah. And it's called the waterfall problem. And so by doing, by abstracting out this pattern of data fetching, it means that we can get in there and we could fix that for you. Now we haven't done this yet. But this is the, we're trying to think ahead to what are the problems, what are the common problems that people have in the React universe? And how can we build this framework to erase those yeah, problems? that makes sense to me. So I'm looking at how these cells work and something I, so I'm looking at an example here where you've kind of declared a bunch of different exports that are sort of named after the different states that the query could be in, like whether it's in the process of loading the data, whether you got back an empty results whether something went wrong or whether everything was successful um so that's pretty cool so that avoids all that sort of conditional logic that we're all used to dealing with when it's trying to mm -hmm. determine what we should render um but i noticed in like the examples that use it you're able to just like import this file as a component if i'm reading it properly so are you doing some sort of magic to sort of translate things that end in like cell.js into Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's so that there's the there's little bits of magic here and there that do things like that. So so they they range from the very small. So things like allowing you to name your file the same name as the component instead of index.js and then and we do that for usability reasons in your text editor. So if yep. in a in a more sense. standard setup you're going to have um, maybe a, a set of folders and you'll have an index inside them and maybe some other assets and things like you want to separate your components by directory and then you have the directory named the same as what the component would be and then inside there there's an index.js. The problem is in your editor when you've got a bunch of these things open now you're staring at 15 index.js files and that's terrible. So these are configuration settings like this. These are, this is not like life changing stuff, but by collecting these together, you get an overall much better usability for the cells. There's a higher order component, like I mentioned, that handles that data flow for you. And then we use uh, configuration Webpack and Babel configuration in order to say anything that's named like this is going to be automatically included in like, this sort of you know, way this, yeah. in order to make it work so it transparently to you it looks like it's a regular component even though it's just a set of exported yeah constants. very cool so one thing i'm wondering is um it looks like to the end user they basically don't have to make any decisions about like choosing a library to actually perform the graphql queries or anything like that it's that's basically opaque to them completely like they don't even care right. they're just specifying what is the query and then Redwood has made some decision about how to execute that query under the hood, but that's not something they have to think about. Whereas if you were doing everything yourself, you might be, oh, I'm going to use Apollo here, or I'm going to use some other GraphQL library. Um, so that's, I guess, an example of a decision that people just don't have to make 
when they're working yeah, in a Redwood that's, app? That's the opinionation, yeah. right? So we say, you're going to use React and you're going to use Apollo for GraphQL and you're going to use Prisma too for your database access and you're going to use these just a variety of other things and configuration settings out of the box so that it all works together. So this is taken exactly from the Rails philosophy of convention over configuration. If you choose these things, then you're on the blessed path and your life will be magical and awesome and beautiful. But at the same time, not restricting you from deviating from that path if you need to. Now, certain things are going to be harder to replace than others. Depending on how we fix things like the waterfall problem for you, we'll probably do it with Apollo. Apollo is kind of gigantic in its in the amount of code that you have to ship to the client. So it's, you know, we, we've chosen Apollo for now because it's the most capable, but it's it's very heavy. And so we, I mean, it remains to be seen how this works, but, but the idea for you as the application developer is that you don't have to care. You're, in your mind, you're writing Redwood stuff, right? And of course you're using some of the things that are provided from the underlying technologies but we want it to feel more like, okay, as long as I write things in the way that Redwood likes me to write them, then I don't have to worry about the details. And if we need to swap out Apollo for something else down the road because of the, just the amount of code that's being shipped, just, um, you know, then, then we want that to be transparent. We would make that backwards compatible. And, 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 but we don't want to, we want it to be flexible enough. We want it to feel enough like you can customize it that you're not afraid to choose it because of a feeling of lock-in. And so we expose the ability to override any of the Webpack configuration, of which there is quite a bit, as you could imagine, or Babel. You know, we make choices about what your linting is going to look like, and we say you're not going to have semicolons, and of course some people are going to pull their hair out and, and would never use it if we enforce that strictly. And so you can say, well, you know, if you want to use a different linting configuration, just put it here. And we'll do that. And in fact, not only will we let you do that, but we'll run the generators, the generated code when you use any of the generators um, for creating a new component or a new cell or a new page or new routes or anything. And we'll run them through your prettier configuration before we save them so that it's already done. For yeah, you. very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So I think maybe the next thing to get into that would, I think where a lot of the interesting conversation is going to happen is some of these opinions on the back end. So after you've kind of initiated one of these GraphQL queries and that's going over the wire to something, um, let's talk about where that's going sure. and how that's working. Let's. So um, it's a node based backend has to be because it's a full stack JavaScript framework. So yep. I guess where, where do we start there? Like what are you using to make that work? Are you relying on any existing tools like express or anything like that? Or is this, completely from scratch uh, sort of approach to the it's, back end. It's from scratch. So the first thing that you are, the thing that you're really running is is Apollo, Apollo mm -hmm. server. Okay. Because the back end is literally just a GraphQL API. Gotcha. There is no other, there is no other back end. That yeah. is the back end. So there's the one is a GraphQL API. On the, on the back end. Yes. Now you can create custom functions as well. So the way that Redwood works right now and the the hope, the long-term hope is that we can maintain this is that your GraphQL API runs in Lambda functions. Mm -hmm. So this is how we make it serverless. Now, there are certain restrictions that apply based on 
the capabilities of the technology, for instance, how much code you can ship to and embed within a, a Lambda function. So if you have a huge backend, you might at some point reach those limits. Um, and with Node being the way that Node is and packages being the way that packages are, NPM, you can you end up adding quite a bit of code even when you're you're trying to do simple things, right? Sure. So the goal there though is in the long term that you'll always be able to ship to Lambda functions. And so if you deploy through Netlify, which is sort of the preferred way to deploy Redwood app right now, mm-hmm. if you deploy to Netlify, they will deploy the your functions for your GraphQL function for you automatically. Like you don't have to touch AWS at all. It just happens automatically. So it is just one function, right? Like that's something that I think is something people talk about a lot when you're talking about serverless and GraphQL. There's this one piece of it that is kind of a little bit in conflict with what people are trying to do with serverless in a lot of ways where you're trying to just ship these small functions that just do one thing so you can kind of deploy them separately and keep them small. But the whole very nature of GraphQL API is that it's one entry point to sort of sort of everything so you have to just deploy it all together yeah yeah it's uh it's abusing lambda maybe a little bit mm-hmm. outside of what their sort of original intention was that's that these what would it's be just that's what it's there for code. we have to <laughs> right but that's it to I its mean, limits I, and, and find ways to use it that were never intended and that's what makes it yeah fun, you know so. we're we're hackers and so yeah. we look at the technology that's available and we say what could we do with this that would work and be awesome and we say okay well there's nothing that would stop you from deploying a full GraphQL API to a Lambda function, and there are restrictions today. But if we could make Redwood popular, and this use case becomes really common, but then people start hitting file size limits, for instance, on how much code you can you can put up to a Lambda function right now. And it's, I mean, the restriction is not like horrible right now, but you will hit it eventually. Then we can go to AWS, and you know we, we know people over there and really have a conversation with them about how can we make this use case work more fluidly in in this system. Or you have other vendors that start up and say, we know that you want to run your GraphQL API in a serverless way, in a globally distributed way, but Lambda's not really doing it. What if we just had a system that was like Lambda, but was more designed specifically to run GraphQL APIs, right? Like you could imagine that existing so um, or you know you can always do this yourself on regular servers too we don't have deployment stuff set up for that quite yet but there's I mean as long as you can run a GraphQL API then you can run you can run this and the other nice thing about the architecture of Redwood is in the very long term like think out 10 years for a company let's say you start your company using Redwood think out 10 years companies start optimizing everything that they can everything that they need to so imagine at some point they say, well, Node is great and all, but our needs have some specific requirement for performance or integration with some external system or whatever. And they could say, we're going to start rewriting parts of our GraphQL API in some other language, some other system. Redwood doesn't care. Redwood front-end doesn't care because it's just GraphQL. So this, this very specific decoupling of the front-end and the back-end you experience some friction. There is friction there, as anyone who's used GraphQL before knows that it's not it's not all rainbows and kittens all the time. Like there are challenges there. And to me, the real benefit of having GraphQL as the mediator between the front end and the back end is long-term maintainability and options down the road. 
and and the the sort of the tertiary benefit that when you think about your code in that way, when you think about your front end and your back end as completely decoupled and mediated by an, a well-defined API, it makes you think better about your code. So talking about Rails, building a large monolithic Rails application with very little advice on how to organize your code, you can get into trouble pretty fast. And I always do. I mean, I like to think that I'm a pretty good programmer, but I mean, I, I run into these problems all the time, especially when you're starting with an idea and you hack something up and then you get some attention and then you keep going. And this is how most startups are, right? You're not going to start by be- writing the, the most beautiful maintainable code ever. But if your framework can really try to encourage you down the right path of organization and how you think about your code and especially your business logic, then I think the framework can actually help you write more maintainable code from the beginning. And for Redwood, that starts with thinking about your backend as an API and not as just a bunch of code that you're going to slap together that your front end is going to run. It requires more discipline, but it's not a ton more discipline. It's a little bit more discipline starting out. But the long-term benefits, I think, can be very large. And so Redwood tries to give you a, a, a directory structure, and we're, we're only at the beginning of this, of this road as well. But to me, giving you this idea that you have services, so we call them services. So your GraphQL API is comprised of several services. And when I say service, I mean that in a, in a sort of business logic way. So you, let's say you have a, a system where you, let's say you have a, I don't know, some kind of a, for, let's, let's talk about uh, like forum software like sure. I was before. Yeah, yeah. So you might have something that is a, like a sort of the, the, a content service within your backend. Content service is responsible for posting and editing of forum posts um, and and fetching them and showing them like that would be all that would be like a, you'd have like a content service. Now let's say this is a paid service. Now you're probably also going to have some kind of a billing service, and within that billing service, you're going to have something that shows invoices and shows plans and allows you to upgrade and downgrade and delete your account. Maybe maybe that's part of an account service, right? Account service is responsible for logging in and for user profile. But when you think about your application breaking it up into a variety of high-level services, then you start organizing your code in a way that makes it maintainable in the long term. And if you don't do this from the beginning, then you're sort of sunk. And there's nothing to say that you can't do that with Rails or any other framework, but the reality is that they don't encourage you to do so at all. There's yeah, nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing there. Trying to keep you working in that direction. That's yeah, there's no higher there's no higher abstraction than the model. This is the problem. People work too close to the database. And so you end up modeling your business logic around your database tables, which is which is not a great way to think about it. it you end up with code that's too tightly coupled. And so services in Redwood are my attempt to f- gently encourage you to think about your backend in this way. So you're saying, here's my here's my higher level service. And now that service is going to be responsible for the GraphQL API. So you so in your billing service, for instance, you have a number of tables within that service. And so the SDL file, the GraphQL SDL file that you write to define your GraphQL API 
in the backend is going to be all the GraphQL that's part of that service. But the service is actually abstracted one level above the GraphQL. And this is to make it really easy not only to write your resolvers, because that's kind of a pain in the ass when it comes to yep. Apollo and writing resolver. You just like write my SDL and then write my resolver map. And then, but you know, that's kind of a, not a very good abstraction. And you want to take all the code out of your resolvers because that's too close to the sort of the, the end point. Um, and then you've got some giant file or whatever. So we do automatic mapping of the GraphQL resolvers to functions that you export from your service file. Gotcha. So if you look in any of the example repositories, you'll see that structure. You have yeah. So uh, I'm looking at the, the example to do app right now. Um, so hopefully this is a good representation of uh, kind of what we're talking about. But, it, but in yeah. the like the blog it, is the, the to do app is super simple. Okay. The example blog is blog probably would be a better one. Okay, so I'll pull that up, yeah. and people listening can reference this uh, later if we're not clear yeah, this enough. Is Redwood, this is GitHub.com/slash/redwood.js/slash/example-blog. Yeah. So we've got an API folder, um, and there's a Prisma folder and a source folder. So is the the Prisma folder? So Prisma is the, is the database schema. So okay. you start with your schema. You say, here's my database tables. Here's what types they are. And I think That's like the there's a lot schema. I want to talk to you about database stuff too. So maybe we'll do the Prisma stuff after the GraphQL stuff because I'm actually yeah, really so let's, curious Let's finish about the thoughts on, on this service stuff because to me, this is one of the biggest, most important yeah. parts of the backend. So in this folder, in the source folder, we've got like a functions folder, which looks like it seems to just consistently so have just like a GraphQL. It's just GraphQL. JS. So that is that is what ends up as a lem, as a lambda function. That is what's going to be deployed. It's kind of like your entry point. From that's the, the that's the yeah that's the entrance point. Gotcha. That's your that's your AWS function. So that's where it starts. In your GraphQL folder, this is where you have these SDL files that you're talking about. Yep. So in this example, we've got one for posts and one for tags. Right. Um, so looking at posts, this looks like. I guess what a regular GraphQL schema generally would look like. I don't have a ton of GraphQL experience. So if I'm, if there's ever interesting things, I guess, that are different than what someone might've seen with regular GraphQL, please yeah, be sure right, to point right it out. Now but. that's completely standard, plain vanilla SDL as GraphQL defines their schema definition. Language. Gotcha. And somewhere in here, there's something that's pointing this to a service of some kind, so or is the, that an right, automatic so, sort of well, linking? So what, it, it's, it's automatic, so you never declare that. It's by name. So if you look in that source directory, you'll also see then the services directory. And within that, you'll see a posts directory. And then within that, you'll see the posts.js file. Got it. And then all these and functions that you're there, exporting here, do these map to like named things in the GraphQL schema? Or is there just like a convention that you always have things with these names? It's by it's by convention. So if you name the exported function in your services directory the same as what it would be called as one of the queries or mutations that you see in the SDL file, then that mapping happens automatically for you. Got it. And so this is a way of extracting those things out. And one thing to notice about the example blog is that it doesn't really, it, the services are a little more fine-grained than they would end up. So the thing is you might end up having your services be a bit more fine-grained if you're doing a simple example like this, where it's like, do you like do you need a post service and a tag service? Like, what's a tag service? You would probably, in the long run, have just a post service, and the tags would be inside of that. Yeah, it's all kind of part of the same area of the domain. Right, so this is, this is maybe not the greatest example of what I'm speaking of, um, mostly because these examples aren't complex enough to really capture yep. what I'm getting at. Um, 
But you can see how the automatic mapping there works. It just saves you a lot of time from having to think about where, like, where do I define these things? And then, but the real magic, the real benefit of these services is that they've become abstracted to a level where you can use them from other services, where you're not going to call a resolver, like in your, in your resolver map, you're not going to have some other piece of code call into that resolver map. That would be unlikely. And just the, the method signature, the, the function signature is not even suitable for calling from other places. You have to provide it context and things that the GraphQL entrance point that Apollo is providing to you that aren't going to be available from other places in your application, yeah. right? The context, for instance. Where do you define so all what, these resolvers? Is this just part of this SDL file too? Because I, I don't the see resolver, it. So the resolvers, you never def, they're, they're defined implicitly by, by exporting those functions from the services gotcha. file. Those are the resolvers. Those gotcha. are literally... Well, they're they're wrapped into resolvers. They're basically collected and turned into a resolver map. Makes sense. But we also do mapping of how they're called. So you'll see that if you look at the code for those resolvers, they look like just normal function calls. They don't look like what you write as a resolver. Like they're not taking a, a root or a parent and they're not taking a context. And this is because we want them to be able to be called from other services because this is your core business logic. And if you want to call into your service, then you can do that from other services, right? So you have this boundary that is a service and all of the functions that you're exporting from that services file, that is your real backend API. Yeah. The GraphQL can expose some of that, but it doesn't have to, right? If you don't want to expose it, you just don't write a query for it or you don't gotcha. write a, a mutation for it. But you would still but create like still a function it. in a service for it. Like there, there doesn't have to be this always one-to-one linking. Like you're right. saying like it's very likely that you might have more functions exported from a service than you have queries Correct. that match to them. Correct. Right, so the service is, is really, um, the mental model is that it is your first class API between bits of your backend. Yeah. But, but so, and so this is, so the real magic of maintainability, in my mind, is having really clear boundaries of responsibility and encapsulation. And, and so that's why a Redwood application is, is constructed in this way. You have, now, full encapsulation, and you know who's responsible for what, and the API is, is completely well-defined between the front end and the back end because it has to be. There is no other way to do it. And at the same time, your back end now is split into services that are going to call into other services, but that, that represents a well-defined API even within the back end. Yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. you're, not, you're exposing some of that to the front end, but you don't have to expose all of it. And this is how you end. This is how you avoid having really horrible spaghetti code, yeah. where everything's dependent on everything. Having these boundaries and thinking of your backend as a set of services gives you that long-term maintainability. And we we sort of encourage and and enforce that from the start with this directory structure and with the with the res, the, the resolver mapping, so that you can reuse that backend code without having to rewrite it, right? If you wrote it in a resolver, then you'd be like, well, crap, now I have to extract this out and put it somewhere and then call it from the resolver. But now you're writing a bunch of boilerplate code to just call from resolvers into some function. It's like, well, why don't we just do that for you? And so we do. Cool. So the way that this works, I'm guessing, then if I wanted to call one of these functions from another service, is it literally as simple as just importing the export that I need and just calling it 
directly like a function there's not yep. like some magic transformation happening in between there nope yeah. all you yeah it's, it's just normal now we do we do the magic is in injecting the the things that aren't that you're not specifying okay. so we will inject the context for instance the context is just available to all of those functions yeah and like as well, the, uh, the request you define response the, kind of typical node context is that kind of what you're talking about it's the context that comes from from Apollo, from from, gotcha. from the GraphQL, right? Because that's that's going to come in, and like you still want to know, like what I need headers, I need yep. you know mm-hmm. like whatever the other the other things that are provided from the GraphQL front end. Like you have a request context, like yeah. tell me about the request. I yeah. need to know something about the request. So you're going to get that. It's just that we've yanked it out of the method call, and we've just made it globally available inside that file yeah. using some Webpack and Babel magic. Love it. Okay, so I think the the last kind of piece of of this that I think is interesting into is just opinions around database access in general. So you mentioned a couple of times it sounds like you're using Prisma two, which yeah, is like sure. the brand new version of Prisma that just came out. Um, Prisma has always been something I didn't fully understand. I feel like when I first heard about it, it was like GraphQL, which was like a hosted GraphQL API, but now like yep. it's evolved to be like a a open source ORM library for talking yes, to essentially. SQL databases, so that, which feels very different to me, but yeah, well, there, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's all part of the same strategy and I'm, I'm no expert on Prisma one either because you know, that's not what we chose. We chose Prisma yeah. two and I'll have to, I'll have to full disclosure. I am an investor in Prisma. I have a small investment in them that I made after we decided to use them. I, I just thought it was so awesome that I think they have a really nice business play as well as well. Um, but so I know I know more about Prisma two because that's you know what we've focused on and what I'm excited about. So Prisma two is they wouldn't call it an ORM; they'd call it a query builder. Um, but it's kind of a query builder plus plus. I guess I don't know. It's you know it's not just like going to generate code that writes SQL for you. I mean that's that is essentially what it does. But with the idea that it does that better than you know I'm not. You can go on the website and read about sure. it. I'm not going to do it justice. One thing, to I, me, one thing I do want to know is like, is it purely for talking to relational databases? No. Well, it is currently. Okay. But the roadmap is to support distributed NoSQL databases as well. So Mongo support, Fauna will be supported. So they want to support relational, but also non-relational. Yeah. And so this is this is another reason that we chose Prisma 2. I mean, a big part of why we chose them was we couldn't find a good... ORM-E or query builder thing that felt good at yeah. all. Like they all, they, I just, we went through all of them and the way that you had to define relationships and things, it was just, you'd get into like cyclic dependency issues and then you had to define relationships with, relationships with strings and stuff and it was just like super verbose, mm-hmm. some of them, and I just never loved any of them. And so when Prisma 2, when we ran into Prisma 2, and this was like, I don't know, six or eight months ago, um, cause we've been working on Redwood for like a year or more, year and a half almost. Um, and so when we ran into it, we were finally like, this feels like a suitable replacement for active record. That's really what was on our minds, right? Sure. Active record yeah. is amazing. Active record is amazing. And how do you go from that to the, what was available in the JavaScript sure. world? Like it was just such a downgrade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Prisma 2 was the first thing that we found that was like, oh, this is super early, but directionally, this is this feels right. Yeah, and so we we chose to go with them, and we've been in close contact with them, and, and we talk a lot about what what does Redwood need, what is Prisma trying to do, 
what are the opportunities there? And and it ends up really nice. So they would call it a query builder. It's and, and the reason is they call it a query builder, not an ORM, is that it's delivering to you just objects of data. It's not providing you these big classes with all these sure, accesses there's, and stuff. Sure, there's no so, like you get a post back and then call post.save right. after you update the title yep. or something. Yep. You have data. to do prisma.posts.update where ID post.id exactly. sort of thing. Yeah. Yes. So it's, it's a query builder. It delivers you data, right? But Got you get it. a nice way to write your queries and write your updates and things because you don't want to sit there and write SQL like that's, yeah. you know, nobody, nobody and wants is there to any really well, exciting, some people want to do that. Is there any really exciting benefits or things that they're trying to deliver on um, that you're excited about in terms of integrating with Redwood beyond just like it's the best sort of API we've seen for interacting um, with a database? Because to me, that's enough to use it. But I'm always right. curious if there's more um, that they're trying to deliver on that you're excited about. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're envisioning a whole ecosystem of things. And so one thing that they have that's super nice is a client that lets you, it's like PHP MySQL admin, if you remember. Okay, yeah, yeah, yep, If you ever cool. wrote PHP, right? It's like a, like a web-based admin to your database. So you can go in there and you can dig around in all the, the database tables and just see, you know, what's in there without having to have a, a separate, you know, Mac app or whatever mm-hmm. to do it for you. It's, it's just there. That was one of the great things about PHP. Like, there's these things that PHP had that's like still almost no one can replicate, and that was one of them. <laughs> PHP MyAdmin, boom, it was just there. You you could like get into your database super easy and see what was in there. That was hugely helpful in the early days of developing. Just like show me my data. Like I don't understand. Like what's this? Why is this happening? Show me the database tables. And it's it's like stupidly hard. So. Um, so they, they have that. So we'll ship that also with Redwood and make it and just spin it up. Right now we spin up the front end, we spin up the back end, um, we spin up a uh, like a uh, graphical, you know, graphic graphical yeah, like your sort of um, interface, GraphQL, right? So you can API, do your, so you can write yeah, your yeah, GraphQL yeah, queries, yeah. right? Cool. So we spin that up so that you can introspect your GraphQL. That's super nice. And it's not actually graphic graphical. It's like a different one, but um, Let's you run your GraphQL queries, and then we'll spin up this uh, this Prisma database inspector. Um, and there's some other things that we think that we can spin up as well, but that's one of them. So that's one piece that they'll add. And then another nice thing, because Prisma is a company and they have to make money, the way that they want to do that in the future is by helping you have visibility into your data. So if you're if you end up using Prisma as your query builder then you'll be able to hook it into their sort of business intelligence platform and start seeing exactly what data is going around and dig into it. And and I don't even know what all. Sure, planned. yeah, that's interesting, but though. There's a layer sure. there that you could opt into that can give you that insight. And, and all you had to do was just build it with Prisma, which you, know, you maybe wanted to do anyway. And then that comes along as an added benefit down the road. Very cool. So um, from the examples that I'm looking at, and you know, because of the fact that Prisma currently talks to relational databases even though like no sql stuff is on the roadmap it sounds like um you are a fan of relational databases at least enough to go through <laughs> ahead of this stuff and it's i true. am also like i still have <laughs> never used a no sql database on anything other than just trying to dick around with it and learn it and right. sometimes i worry that i'm like getting left behind in the dust or something because it feels like only the old Rails guys care about relational databases anymore. <laughs> so it's it's cool to see, you know, that Postgres is still alive <laughs> here. Yeah, well, I'm and, I'm bringing some old school back yeah, to 
back to JavaScript. So for me, it's it's about just getting things done fast, just getting getting things done quickly. Um, and with a relational database, you have a very well-defined structure, and you can put your data in that structure, and then you can get information about how these the data across these structures. You know, that's sort of the definition of a relational mm-hmm. database. And you don't have to worry about different documents at different versions and what what things have what data and are all of these things going to look the same uh, and just the, the difficulties of defining what the schema of your database is to begin with. And that's not to say that NoSQL databases are, there's anything wrong with them. I think they're, it's about matching the solution to the problem. And so the long-term vision for me of Redwood is that you might actually use both. That for some of your core user information and whatever structured things that you have, you're like, well, this is this is relational by its very nature. So I'm just going to put that in a relational database. And but I have these other things like people can create this this content, and it's super, you know, like it's it would be really complicated to record that in a structure. I just want like JSON. And then you're like, okay, well maybe I'm going to use Mongo or Fauna or whatever. Um, Cassandra or who God knows what, right? Dynamo. I'm going to use that for that that less structured data, and now you win, right? And you, you and you know that's probably data that you're not doing joins across. You're just like this is a document, like it doesn't relate to anything. It's just a document. It's just some content. And then you you slap that into a NoSQL database, and you get the performance and the characteristics that you get out of a NoSQL database. So via Prisma you could have both and we could expose them both very easily to you. You could have five databases, like who cares? Cause it's just a query builder. Um, we have to decide like if you have, if you have multiple database connections, what does that look like right now? You, you just, you can create, you know, it pulls in your service files, pull in a, a DB variable that you use to access your database, but like you can pull in whatever you want. You could pull in DB one, DB two, or call them RDB. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And DB or whatever you wanted to call them. They're just databases, right? There's no, that's not magical. There's no magic there, really, mm-hmm. right? That's just normal code. So then you can query each database when you need the data from them, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So the one thing that I've been kind of wondering is with the relational database stuff, my understanding is that from the looking around that I've done, there ha- there's not a lot of great things out there that exist technology-wise yet for doing serverless to like a relational database like there's mm-hmm. there's yes issues there with like making sure you it's hard to do like connection pooling and stuff the same way that you can do when you control a number of web servers and stuff and i know like Indeed, aws right. rds proxy like just came out in like um preview which looks like an interesting approach to solving that problem there's like aurora serverless but i'm not totally convinced that that is the best solution either so i'm curious from your perspective because this must be something that you're exploring and playing with and maybe it's something that falls into that category of stuff that you're betting on getting better a year from now i'm curious to know like what your story for that is currently what sort of you're watching and what you're sort of excited about and making sure that all i is going to work and, and maybe i'm just missing something that's newish that solves it all currently so i'm just curious to learn more about what you're, you're not, watching you're not <laughs> you're not missing it the the solutions for this are i think ongoing so there are some pretty decent distributed types of databases but you're going to you're going to pay for that for that characteristic so right now if you want to connect to a database from a lambda function you can it's not a problem but you do run into the connection pooling problem at some point like you said 
Now, it's not probably as bad as you might imagine because AWS is only going to spin up as many Lambda functions as you really need, and each one of those is going to reuse a connection as much as it can. And so you're going to need a pretty heavy amount of usage in order to have a ton of AWS functions spun up, right? Because it's just, you know, it's single-threaded, but, like, you can burn through requests pretty fast depending on what you're doing. I have super slow queries. That's a, that's a different thing. But in the normal case where your queries are not super long living and your traffic is not super high, then you can get away without having a proxy. And that's what predict COVID today, that's a website I, I mentioned before. When we set this up, we're just like, I'm just gonna, I, I, you know, I just paid for the database. I was like, I'm gonna get you the biggest database and I spun up some ridiculously big RDS uh, for it to make sure it wasn't gonna be a problem because we didn't really know. Um, but in, in practice, it worked totally fine without, without any connection pooling. Um, and we're gonna write up a blog post about what happened and, and what, what we saw and, and the characteristics of that so that people can understand it a little bit better. But it's never particularly comfortable to be running in a situation where you know that you could exhaust the number of connections because your number of, your number of business logic runners, your number of GraphQL API processes is unbounded. And yeah, there and there's nothing making sure that it never exceeds that, right? It's just right, right. So it, in it practice, very unlikely, yeah. but you have no guarantee. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right, but we're we're programmers. We don't we don't like <laughs> you know. Should, it yeah, should be fine. exactly. Should it's be like fine. well, if I generate two random strings and they could be the same, so I have to code around <laughs> that, even though it's a one in a billion chance or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah. Even if the probabilities is one in a million, guess yeah. what? If if you know if, if an event happens a million times a day, then you're probably getting that thing happening once a day. So. Um, so, so you can do it without a connection pool right now. The connection pooling options right now are not super awesome. AWS does have, as you mentioned, their their proxy, and that's um, we tried. We were like under a, a deadline to get this thing out, and so we were trying to set it up, and we never we never got it working the way that we wanted. But it should be able to solve that problem very well. Um, so that's coming because they AWS understands this need as well. They're like, well, we have Lambda and we have databases, so how do we, you know, like, yeah, how do you make we need those to have two like some bulletproof story for that. Yeah, exactly. So that will be, I think, a really excellent solution in the long run. But you're going to need something, right? For for Postgres, you could spin up a PG bouncer process somewhere. But like, this is not the dream of Red. The dream of Redwood is not. Oh yeah, go to DigitalOcean and spin up a PG bouncer, right? Like. You want some sort of holistic the, deployment sort of to the whole point. Strategy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but one of the other core tenets of Redwood is that sort of that is sort of the anti Kubernetes for deployment, and that Jamstack is is the because and this inherits from Jamstack, but it's that you don't want to have to worry about servers, you don't have to worry about configuring like the, all the super complex machinery to get your app live. Yeah. You just want to push it, you know. Um, I never want Command, to log into to AWS your repos- to create a database. Yeah. And, and curr- you don't even currently want to touch- you do with, with any of these services. You know what I mean? Yeah, you don't want to so. you don't want to touch AWS. You don't want to touch anything really. Now the database is always the hardest part. The database is always the thing that most people are gonna need to tweak and optimize first when it comes to scale. And so this the solution there has to be, well, okay, I mean maybe Netlify I would love to I'm on I'm on Netlify's board, so I have now some ability to to sort of encourage Netlify to do certain things. One of the things I will be encouraging Netlify to do is to work better in this type of a in, in the circumstance, right? To work better for apps, Jamstack apps, which I think we're now at the at just the we're just sort of barely touching what's possible there. And Redwood is one of the ways that you could do this. But there's a bunch of people 
and next the stuff in next nine three um, that you talked about on your last show goes over reasons like these are cool building blocks that people are starting to put out there to make it possible to build real app, data-based driven web applications. And so I think that these Jamstack providers, uh, Netlify, Zeit, et cetera, are, are going to be going down this road. So, Net, so Redwood is sort of my contribution to say, here's what I think this could be like for a certain set of people that want to, you know, this type of structure and this type of discipline around GraphQL and all this. Um, and, but it's going to take some changes to the providers to get the, to get the dream. But for me, the dream is about deployment as well, where it is just push a button, it's out there, and it's basically infinitely scalable without you having to do anything, right? The database is always the hardest part. And right now, none of these things are particularly serverless other than Aurora, which is like, as uh, Aurora, I don't know, what, like, what, what are the performance characteristics there are, are a little bit, uh, I mean, I haven't dug into it enough to even know, but most people are going to not be in love with um, Aurora, especially because they don't support modern versions of MySQL and, yeah, it's and like stuff. Yeah, it's like five to sod seven or something, and they have cold starts yeah. for your queries, which seems scary. And right, exactly. Yeah. It's just not what people expect out of databases. So anyone serious is just going to spin is going to want a full database spun up that's yeah. just always running. It's always available, and that I think is fine. The question then becomes: What is? How do you scale it? Like, what is the scale, and how is that edge ready? And so the edge-ready answer for databases for Redwood, I think, is I think there's two answers. One of them is there is a set now of distributed relational databases that are out there. They're, they've been out there for a while. Any, Most of them any you have in to particular run on your that own. you're watching closely. Well, so there's things like Cockroach um, that have been out there, but you you know there's no hosted version. Like I, for me, it's like you got to have some hosted version in order to fit in into this. Mm-hmm. So. What you have now is RDS, which can be which they, they can distribute, and you can have really nice characteristics there. There's another company called Yugabyte. That's Y U G A B Y T E. Yugabyte has a distributed relational database that has amazing performance. It's probably technologically the best distributed relational database. They have kind of a hosted solution, and I think they're going more that direction to make that easier. But it's still going to be it's going to be pricey. It's going to be but like that's fine, right? I'm talking about once you get to the higher scale, once your company's five, ten years old, or whatever, and you're like, all right, we got to have, you know, we want our data everywhere, we want read slaves everywhere. Um, how do we do that, right? So these are solutions that you could potentially do that with. The question is, can you start with them, or do you have to migrate to them later on? Because nobody nobody loves migrating their databases, right? Like it's a nightmare. It's horrible. So are they cheap enough and simple enough to use out of the gate, and then sort of twiddle knobs and get them uh, more over time? And you can do that with Yugabyte. You can start with one database, co-located with your lambdas uh, when you begin, and it's not very expensive, and it's you know it solves all your problems for you. And then over time, you're like, okay, now I'm going to add some read databases, databases strictly for reads in these geographic locations. And I'm also going to put my business logic there so that I can get my reads done instantly because the the front end is being statically delivered via CDN because it's just a React, it's just a React single page app. So you got your client on edge, you've got your lambdas on edge, essentially. And now you've got your database, at least for reads, distributed globally for edge. And that that to me is the architecture for Redwood that we're aiming for to make that really first class really easy. 
um, and as jam stacky as possible. And the database is always, you know, I think yeah, as long as there's easy ways to get started and uh, with Netlify, it's like and Netlify partners with some database providers like Fauna to make it really easy to spin those up. And then we'll continue doing that for other databases. So the Redwood story initially can be like, just set these configurations, like Netlify will spin up a database for you and boom, you're deployed, you're done, it's fine. You play around with it. It starts to get real and you're like, oh crap. Now you spin up a real database on AWS or whatever. Netlify lets you hook, hook it into your VPN and now you have control over your database. You're using Yugabyte or using something else. So that's on the relational side. On the NoSQL side, things are a little easier. There are some providers that can do that better, right? Mongo, Fauna, I think Fauna, I find Fauna really exciting. The developer experience of it is not where it needs to be yet. It's really complex from a query perspective. But there, I, I've talked to Evan, CEO, recently, and directionally, again, I think they're they're in exactly the right place. They're focusing all their attention on serverless, on exactly the the use case that Redwood presents. And so I think I think Redwood and Fauna can kind of move closer to each other, and Fauna could become maybe the best solution for the Redwood dream um, if they can get you semantics that are a little bit more relational and a little bit easier and, and more traditionally, I don't know, it, it, you'll have to go look at how you use Fauna, but like it's, it's a pretty different universe of how you query things. Um, but definitely keep an eye on Fauna because they're amazing right now for certain use cases, but for me, it's, again, you have to meet a certain developer experience bar and I don't, think Fauna's quite there yet, but they're definitely intending to be. And then they're automatically globally distributed day one, reads, writes, like everything. So um, I would love to get to that, yeah. to that world. All super exciting stuff, man. It's a exciting time with all the serverless stuff. It's like young, but things are happening, you know? And uh, I definitely, you know, like you, I'm definitely betting on a future where... Um, we don't ever really have to think about real servers ever again. Hopefully, yeah. That, uh, I mean, how can it? How can it not be right? Yeah. Like in the future, it's going to have to be just just the generic compute grid, and yeah. you don't even work. You're just like, I don't care where it is. I don't care who runs it. I just I want basically a giant computer and a giant storage thing and a giant delivery system. And I mean, we're pretty close. Like think of, think about how far we've come in ten a decade. years. Yeah. Hundred percent, right? It's yeah. amazing. Everything was completely different ten years ago, and so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought it was good then. Like it's, it I felt, know, I know. We still had Heroku, right? Like <laughs> Heroku. So. Well, right. So Heroku was the was I think the first instance of realizing that like, oh, this can be better. Yeah. Like I can just this can just be taken care of for me. Mm-hmm. This can just be a generic thing, and I push to it, and they just do everything, right? Yeah. But Heroku's not flexible enough and everyone bails from Heroku once their thing gets big enough and it's run by Salesforce. So you like have no, you know, when are they <laughs> going to shut that down? You have no idea. So yeah. AWS, you can rely on a little bit more to just be a generically available. That's what they're optimized for. So I don't know. I just, I love, I love the direction that the hosting services are going. I love that. I don't have to think about Kubernetes. Like Kubernetes is great if you're AWS, right? But it's sure. not great if you're me yeah, writing an application. Yeah. Yeah, that should be a totally separate concern for a totally separate group of people. Yeah, it's just, it's not, most people shouldn't have to worry about it, right? I think, and this architecture, which is admittedly a bit weird for Redwood, right? It, I think, I think it's, I think it can be the future. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I think maybe that's a good place to start wrapping up. Is there any other uh, important stuff that we didn't get touch on that you really wanted to get in? 
I think that's the main thing. If you go check it out, we have a tutorial that's amazing. It's super, it's, it's super easy to go through. It's really comprehensive, uh, step-by-step. Uh, it's, it's really the best introduction to Redwood to get an idea of what we're after. Yep. So that's on redwoodjs.com. If you want a sticker, I will send you a sticker, actually five stickers, for free anywhere in the world. You just go to redwoodjs.com and click on the sticker thing and fill out the little form, and I will send it to you for free. Awesome. So redwoodjs.com, that's the best place to keep up with Redwood by the signs of it. Any other um, places you want to point people to, uh, other people involved in the project or anything that you think uh, people should pay attention to? Redwoodjs on Twitter, and the community site is linked through just community.redwoodjs.com, so you can get on there. It's It's a discourse forum. Um, we don't have a Slack or anything. We don't, we don't open up a real time community right now, mainly because we, we want to make sure that the community is unbiased towards location. Like it doesn't matter where you are, like you're going to get kind of the same treatment, which is not the case uh, when you do like real time chat and you're focused on that as well as searchability. Like we just want all of this stuff to be memorialized online and searchable. Forms are the best. Um, And so that's, I'm glad that you're still carrying the forum flag. I'm so nostalgic for <laughs> PHPBB yeah. <laughs> for life. So much better. Hopefully we can bring it back. I know GitHub <laughs> is working on an exciting like uh, forums feature right now. So yeah, there's, there's discussions yeah. that funny. Like we started working on that feature. I don't know, seven years ago. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time to come and talk to me about this stuff, man. I'm super excited to dig into Redwood more and keep following along with it and, uh, you know, see where it goes. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. There you have it, folks. Hope you enjoyed this conversation about Redwood JS. If you're interested in the show notes, you can find them at fullstackradio.com slash 138. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.